to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and a CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of January 6th, 2020. So, a bunch of articles on tap. Let's start off with, I'm going to group these all together into some really interesting applications of artificial intelligence that are things that we can start to deploy now, which is kind of exciting. So, the first one, out of Healthcare IT News by Bill Sawicki, January 3rd, Howard Radiology Assistant. The NYU School of Medicine's technology enables radiologists to see images the way they currently see them, and then, if they deem necessary, ask the AI for its opinion. And they say the results to date are impressive. It's probably the most important uh, issue that they're, they're working with here. It has to do with variability in screening mammography. And uh, many women are asked to undergo additional imaging follow following their screening mammography, and there's a cost as well as stress for patients. So Dr. Giris, Giris the assistant professor, uh, Department of Radiology at the NYU School of Medicine led an AI-powered effort to tackle this challenge. They deployed a deep convolutional neural network. The way it works is by learning from a very large number of image label pairs. In this case, we trained the network by showing it approximately 800,000 examples with the correct diagnosis outcome many times. The whole training process took approximately three weeks. In order for this to be possible, we need to use a very powerful computer with a graphical processing unit. So then, let's see how it works here. Uh, the, the radiologists would see the images as normal, then if necessary, they could ask for the AI opinion. And the AI can give a radiologist a predicted probability that the patient has the answer and point to the parts of the image that it considers the most suspicious, if there are any such images, or excuse me, any parts of the image. Now, their AI is not currently deployed in the hospital, but they are looking forward to a pilot. So let me jump on to, well, let's talk about this one for a second. Why do I think it's important? This is where I see AI as being something that we will be deploying probably within this year. You're going to see more and more systems going live with these things. I don't think every system can make their own on this because no one has access to 800,000 images for uh, learning purposes, but many large academic institutions will. And think they'll make these algorithms commercially available. So I think that's pretty exciting stuff. I love having the, the concept of radiology, AI, providing a second opinion, so to speak. And I really think that that's where we're going to see advances in AI on the clinical side. I think we'll see more in the process automation around billing claims, uh, demographic type things, the administrative clerical stuff that as clinicians we don't really care too much about. I think you'll see AI taking a much larger and faster role there, but in radiology and image processing is where I think we'll start seeing some of the clinical uses really step in, and I'll step in as a second opinion. So here's another article, Rural Hospital Improves Medication Reconciliation via AI Automation into the EHR. 
This is also Bill Sawicki article. Automated SIG translation a system created time savings of 34 hours per month for clinicians and further they're claiming a 30-day readmission rate fell from 6.2% to 5.5%. Uh, so this is King's Daughters Medical Center, a 99-bed community hospital in Brookhaven, Mississippi. They were concerned that pa patient records could potentially contain incomplete or inaccurate medication history data. Well, my editorial on that is that's a guarantee. <laughs> I have not seen a hospital yet that has mastered the med rec process for patients that are being admitted other than sticking pharmacy techs in the emergency department to do it correctly. And that's expensive and most hospitals are not sustaining those kind of initiatives. Anyway, continuing on. And many current prescription routing technologies provide free text SIG information for dosing instructions rather than discrete text that is easily translatable to an EHR. Both pharmacists and clinical staff responsible for medication reconciliation during the patient triage intake process must manually sift through the SIG data to create prescriptions, taking precious time away from patient care. So what they wanted to do was to use artificial intelligence to convert that free text into discrete data. Hospital hoped that doing so would reduce clicks and keystrokes, ensure a more accurate patient medication history, and reduce adverse drug events. The vendor that they used is Doctor first. The automation operates entirely in the background without clinician intervention and uses statistical validation and clinical analysis to translate SIGs in real time. The results in the first seven months following SIG translation implementation, King's Daughter's overall 30-day readmission rate fell from 6.2% to 5.5%. The team believes that improved accuracy of medication dosage accounts for at least a significant portion of the decrease in readmissions possibly due to a decline of post-discharge adverse drug reactions. Now, caution that I'm not sure there's causation there, but it's interesting, whatever it is that caused, that's a really good readmission rate, 5.5%. I don't care how you got there, I want it. <laughs> I'll do whatever it takes to get to that. So that's really cool numbers. Again, another interesting application of artificial intelligence, this one is deployed, this one is live and a vendor is bringing that solution and i think that is fantastic and we should be doing more of this medication reconciliation is a pain in the butt so whatever burden you can take off of our clinicians if ai can help us with that yes yes we need that yes next article one more on ai advocate healthcare implements ai tech to detect stroke more quickly this one is also out of, this one's Becker's Hospital Review from Becky Threes, Friday, January 3rd. And this one is Advocate Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge, Illinois, is using artificial intelligence powered software that could recognize and respond to stroke within minutes. The software called VizAI leverages deep learning and applies an algorithm to analyze a patient's brain scan to detect signs of stroke. That workflow normally is done by a human that would wait for a radiologist, the specialist would then be called, and that can take 45 minutes, sometimes beyond an hour. Who, this is Dr. Lopez, who serves as the director of Advocate Care's stroke program. This whole process has been cut down to about six minutes. So I'm not sure about it taking an hour to do that process, because most of us have 
brain attack teams now, and those brain attack teams are not taking an hour to get from complete of image to interpretation of that image. Nevertheless, I think it's really interesting to have the AI in place because at two in the morning, you don't always have your attending radiologist there. You might have a residence and you might have the brand new intern. And uh, I wouldn't mind having that AI tech there. So again, we're seeing AI being deployed. My point here for CMIOs, AI is on its way. You should be looking at how you're going to start deploying this in 2020. There's plenty of opportunities to integrate this into mainstream care. This is no longer some fringe, crazy outlying thing that's only being done at academic institutions. You're starting to see a whole bunch of hospitals now bring this into mainstream. So figure out your use case and then see how you want to do it. Next article. This one also is out of Becker's Hospital Review. And here's the title. First case of blood clot in space treated from Earth. Physicians detected the first case of a blood clot in space and treated it from Earth, according to a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The astronauts underwent ultrasounds of their internal, internal jugular veins, performed at scheduled times in different positions during the mission. About two months into the mission, the ultrasounds revealed a blood clot in one astronaut. This was the first time NASA had encountered this in space. The space station pharmacy had injectable anoxaparin, but no blood thinner reversal medication. The physician team told the astronauts to begin treatment with the injectable anoxaparin. The astronauts took a higher dose, which was reduced after 33 days, so that it would last until they could get the patient onto apixaban uh, orally. The astronauts took apixaban until four days before returning to Earth. So the apixaban arrived via supply spacecraft. Uh, once on Earth, the astronaut had more ultrasound examinations, which showed no need for taking more blood thinners. The clot was gone in 10 days. Even after six months, the astronaut showed no concerning symptoms. The astronaut had no personal or family history of blood clots. Why am I presenting this to CMIOs? Because I think it's really freaking cool. That is an amazing telehealth use case. I don't know how many of us are going to be adopting treating patients in space, but just from a cool factor, I love it. Next one. This one's a little scarier. Minnesota opioid prescriptions plummet, but providers may soon be penalized for overprescribing. Becker's Hospital Review, January 3rd. Opioid prescriptions in Minnesota have dropped significantly over the past few years, but the state still intends to implement penalties against certain physicians that overprescribe painkillers. This is from the Minnesota Department of Human Services. New opioid prescriptions for Minnesota residents benefiting from state programs, I'm assuming that's Medicare and Medicaid, have declined 33% since 2016. Opioid dosages above new state guidelines have also decreased, dropping by more than half. Minnesota has typically reported lower opioid prescribing levels than other states during all this epidemic, but the state opioid related overdose deaths still surged from 54 cases in 2000 to 422 in 2017. In response to new state laws, the Department of Human Services has sent providers private reports each year regarding personal prescription rates. DHS also manages a quality improvement program for providers that continue to prescribe outside of community standards. 
Physicians with higher prescribing rates run the risk of being removed from the medical assistance and Minnesota care programs. So why do I bring this up? We've developed some narcotic analytics. I've done it at my previous organization. I do it at our, at our current organization. And a 33% decline since 2016 feels about right. That's what we've been seeing as well. Virginia also had in place this, well, you received kind of a nasty gram that made you feel real bad about your prescribing habits from the state saying, here's where you are, here's where the rest of your colleagues are, you seem to be an outlier. And even though there was no threat, it just kind of seemed implied. I don't know, maybe our providers were reading too much into it, but it definitely had an impact. And I don't know that that's the best way to manage the opioid epidemic is through punitive actions on physicians. Okay, sure, if you got a pill mill running in your neighborhood, by all means, no problems, let's go ahead and you wanna kinda of shut that down. That's the DEA that shuts that down anyway. But what I'm afraid of and I am seeing is that people that probably really do need narcotics for serious pain their providers are saying, no, we no longer provide that service at all in any way, shape, or form for any controlled substance. I think that's a little drastic because that can leave patients in a real serious bind. Their pain management physician leaves the community. They were on some pretty high doses of drugs. And now what? These patients typically show up in primary care and the primary care physician now has to deal with this. I don't know that they have the option to say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not prescribing it because withdrawal is not a nice thing to do to people, particularly from benzos where it could be fatal. So really a difficult situation. I think the Department of Human Services in Minnesota is going about it in the wrong way. But from a CIO standpoint, I think the analytics around this is very important. If you haven't developed prescribing analytics, understanding What's the variation in prescribing? How many pills are being given for the same procedure? So if someone's doing a, uh, an ORIF of an ankle, how many pills does orthopedic surgeon A give versus orthopedic surgeon B? Yes, you should be looking for those outliers long before the state comes knocking on your door. That's my Next, let's talk about this opinion article that was written in the New York Times came out December 31st. Title, Doctors, Nurses, and the Paperwork Crisis That Could Unite Them. And this was written by uh, Teresa Brown and Stefan Bergman. And they are professors, one's at the University of uh, Pittsburgh and the other one's at NYU. So they start off, there's a paragraph here I'll read you, which I think is a little inflammatory, but here we go. Too often, each profession sees the other as fighting separate battles and sometimes against each other. Doctors blame nurses and vice versa for the failings of a system that punishes us all and our patients. Instead, the two of us are suggesting that nurses and doctors try something unusual. Let's put our differences aside and work together to achieve real change, starting with a pernicious problem that drives so much of our mutual discontent, the electronic health record. The current system is pushing both doctors and nurses to the breaking point. The article then goes on to talk about the usual statistics that you've all heard about and read that doctors are committing suicides and 
burnout and we spend billions of hours in the EHR, nurses as well. And so I'll wrap up with their kind of the, towards their conclusion here. They say, this is why nurses and physicians must come together. We must acknowledge the harm done by these ever increasing documentation requirements without losing the core benefits of electronic health uh, record keeping. So if you haven't read this article, check it out. It's online. Also look at some of the comments. There's hundreds of comments uh, attached to this article. I think here there are segments that are purposely inflammatory, which is probably done to spark interest. The concepts of having nurses and doctors coming together to fight the EMR at first glance, this might appear appealing. That's really not the correct answer. Having clinicians come together to drive the real solutions that healthcare needs, I'm all in favor of. Let's tackle things about the overregulation, the payment models, drug pricing, malpractice, electronic um, transfer of data across systems, and our ability to coordinate care. Yeah, that's the kind of things I think we need to be coming together about. And oh, by the way, yes, the EMR has some issues that need to be tackled as well. I'm not seeing any of the medical societies that support us really do anything more than write some emails or put some comments on a CMS um, regulation site. It's going to take something more than that. It's going to take a significant event to spark a demand for change. And personally, I just haven't seen it yet. So interesting article. I think they're trying to stimulate some action. I'm not sure they're going to see it. Let's tackle, let's do just one more article. This one also in the New England Journal of Medicine, Changes in Quality of Care After Hospital Mergers and Acquisitions, January 2nd, 2020. So I'll read you some of the, the highlights here. The hospital industry has consolidated substantially during the past two decades and at an accelerated pace since 2010. Multiple studies have shown that hospital mergers have led to higher prices for commercially insured patients, but research about effects on quality of care is limited. So using Medicare claims and the hospital compare data from 2007 through 2016 on performance of four measures of quality care, which was a composite of some clinical process measures, a composite of patient experience measures, mortality, and the rate of readmission during discharge, uh, after discharge. And what they found basically to summarize it is hospital acquisition by another hospital or hospital system was associated with moderately worse patient experiences and no significant changes in readmission or mortality rate. I do want to dive a little bit further into their methodology. So they were looking at transactions that were consummated between 2009 and 2013. And then they looked at a consistent set of measures for two years before and a few years after. And here's some of my criticism of the article. Number one is they're using Medicare claims data. And as we all know, claims data stinks. How well doctors code has a tremendous impact on what that data says. Now, in theory, you could say, well, it, it probably didn't change much for uh, the hospitals that got acquired compared to their controls, but I still don't like Medicare claims data. I also don't like the patient satisfaction scores that they're using because these paper surveys that get mailed to a patient are garbage. So I just don't consider the, some of the tools they use to be really robust. The best we have, perhaps, but I still, I still don't love it. Uh, 
they do acknowledge, here's a, a paragraph where they're saying some of the possible explanation for decline in performance is that there's a diversion of resources towards integration. So their leadership is now focused on how do we get these two organizations together, so therefore you're not focusing on quality. And I think that's probably really insightful. I think that is accurate. Uh, I'm seeing it as we're going through a, an integration now, and you're worried about surviving the integration. You're not so much worrying about how you're performing on the patient satisfaction survey on day one of that acquisition. Sure, it's still important, don't get me wrong. I know hospitals focus on it, but each uh, trying to make sure your staff don't jump ship is also very important. I think the other thing that this article highlights is integration is hard. And from a CMIO standpoint, the healthcare IT integration is really hard. And I don't think three years is enough time. It's possible they haven't even finished the, the EMR integration or the uh, ERP integration. Payroll probably got done relatively early, but many of those other systems probably are not done by three years. And so I think it's unfair to say that integrations are not, excuse me, that acquisitions are not valuable because, well, we didn't see anything on these measures. It's concerning that they didn't see anything, but not surprising because integrations are hard and they need more time. And integrations last a long time. Also consider the alternative. In some situations, the alternative to integration is closure. And what's the impact of health on a community where their hospital closes? So you're gonna have an increase in unemployment and therefore people who then go uninsured, as well as longer commute times to other hospitals, particularly in rural areas. So that was not taken into account. And it's very difficult to take that into account because you don't know if the hospital is going to close or not if it's not acquired. But many hospitals are in the red and they are merging not because they think it's a great idea. They're merging because they're, they're dying on the vine. And that has to do with some regulatory things that have happened and payment uh, changes that have happened. So interesting article. I think their, their premise is great. We should be looking for quality from these mergers, but I'm not convinced that this article is the final answer because if any of you have gone through one of these uh, integrations, it's not easy. And I think we should wrap it up there. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or send me an email at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.